bow your heads, I wonder where else I would have you to bow them. Or regardless. So anyway, we are in a week on peace. John chapter 16. Why don't you pick up with me in verse 25. Pick up with me in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and you have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and we do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, or many troubles. But you take heart, for I have overcome the world Today our big idea is that peace is not the absence of suffering or war, but it is the presence of Jesus. D.L. Moody, well-known pastor, a great many people are trying to make peace, but that's already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is enter into it. So we look today at this fruit of the Spirit and what it means for us to be people who are displaying the peace that God has given to us in Jesus and making that known to the world that we live in and what needs to happen for us to to do that. What needs to take place for us so that that is in effect. How can we understand God's great peace? To understand the full context of this passage, we have to consider the nation of Israel and the disarray that they were in at the time of the the earthly life of Jesus as well as well before that. They are always either slaves or in occupied territory. They were slaves in Egypt. They were invaded by Babylon. They were invaded by Persia. They were eventually invaded by the Greeks. They were invaded by the Syrians. Eventually, in that place in the Bible between the Old and the New Testament, a man named Judas Maccabeus, which literally means the hammer, which is an awesome nickname, Judas the hammer Maccabees delivers them from Greek oppression. And when he delivers them from this oppression, there is freedom that is there only for them to be taken captive and occupied yet again by Rome. It is in the face of this that the Jewish people are hoping and praying for a Messiah to come to do what Judas has done except better. They want someone to come and deliver them from Roman oppression. They don't want the war 
that is raging in their hearts with Rome to be there. But in not wanting that war, it's not necessarily them wanting peace and to be the one who is... They don't simply want to be set apart as a peaceful people from Rome. They, in actuality, many of the Jewish people want to be the ones who are overthrowing. They want to be the ones who reign and they rule. That's why we have the very odd conversation between the mother of Jesus and his and her two sons. There were soldiers everywhere if you were to walk through a Roman occupied territory. And in the midst of this, if you've ever been in a place that is occupied or ever watched a television show where there is an occupied territory, there is a sense of peacelessness in that. There is war that is raging even though there may not be an actual battle. When we look into the history of the Jewish people, we know that many of the Jewish people were zealots. Some of these zealots were attempting all of the time to overthrow these Roman governments. There would be small battalions of men who would come together and begin to battle against Rome. Many believe that that's what Jesus was leading initially at, the point, at this point in his life. The various messiahs were trying to rise up against the nation of Rome. Not only do you have zealots trying to force battles against Rome, you have another group of people which is a subsect of the zealots called the Sicarii. That literally means the dagger men. And they would go into crowded territories where Jewish people and Roman soldiers were. They would sneak up behind these Jewish soldiers, or these, rather these Roman soldiers, and in the small place between their armor where there was an opening, they would stab them and leave not noticed. The world that Jesus lived in was an incredibly terrible Place. There was tension everywhere. And so for all of us who think that the world is just much worse, it is not, that is not true because the problem has never been our outward action. It's always been the hearts of men and women. Our hearts are opposed to God. And the reason that we do not have peace with God is because we don't want that. In our own power, in our natural inclinations, peace is not something that we desire. So we look at this idea of what peace is in the Scripture and why we would ever consider the importance of peace. And we see Jesus saying to His disciples in some of His last days, three days before His death, this world is messed up, but I've overcome the world. I have come to meet with you. So we see this text and we see the idea of the tension of, of peace and war considering all that history is even here. And the first thing that we see when we look at the passage is when we consider what peace is, God, He loves us. God loves His people. The reason that there is anxiety and tension on behalf of the non-Christian is that they really have one enemy. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you are at war in your soul with one person. And that person is God. Your heart's desire and your mind's affection, everything about you pushes against God, even though God desires to rescue and save. Our God is a loving, merciful God who calls people to Himself. We are 
a few days into a unique situation at the Poe home. It is well documented here at Grace Bible Church that I'm not a super fan of animals. However, last week in the midst of a little bit of a travel schedule, my mother, uh, my, my mother, my, my children's mother let me know that she was uh, going to foster a dog. So this decision begins to happen. The, the snowball effect takes place. She lets me know that they're going to give you a, a crate for the dog and they provide food for the dog and someone to take the dog out. No, they don't provide that. They're going to do all of the doggy things that need to be done. And we, it just so happens that we have this attack dog that we're going to have. This is ferocious animal is going to be at my home. And, you know, there are various dogs that are, seem more dangerous than others. We've heard of the danger of the pit bull. And I remember as a child the fear that I had of Rottweilers and Doberman Pinschers and German Shepherds. These dogs that are used for military tactical training. So we have one of these. We have a German Shepherd at our house. And so I come in late last night. And this ferocious animal is in its crate. And Hope had let me know... Earlier that day, when you come in, let the dog out. Like, who let the dog out? I did. Uh, so I get home, and this dog does not know who I am, this ferocious beast. I'll show you a picture of him, her. Uh, her, her name is Greta because she's a German shepherd. If she was a Spanish shepherd, it would be something else. But German Shepherd Greta, and she's in the crate, and she just begins to snarl and growl at me because she does not know me, and I don't know her. We have no relationship whatsoever. But what I want to do, well, what I really want to do has nothing to do with this story. But what I'm attempting to do is to take her out of the crate and offer her freedom and let her do what needs to be done. But when she started snarling and growling, I thought, no, nah, not in it. Nah, I'm not for this. I've, I've seen movies. I go to lay down in my bed, and, and Hope said, did you take the dog out? I said, no, she growled at me. <laughs> not welcoming. When we read through the idea of God and who He is, we are at war with God because we don't want what He offers. We don't want to know that God loves us. We don't want to bask in that. We, we don't want to be part of that. Notice again what this text says. Jesus comes at them. We're going to break down this figures of speech thing in just a moment. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Plain speak coming here. You will ask me in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. You, through me, Jesus says, get to realize that God the Father loves you. In Jesus, God has offered us freedom from the war that we have with Him. 
He has offered release from the anxiety that the brokenness of our world has on us. Because of what sin is, every single one of us are at war with God apart from Jesus. Now, I understand that we love to look at our friends and neighbors and colleagues and people that we know really well who have no relationship with Jesus and we begin to understand who they are based on their intention and their attitude toward us. To understand the spiritual condition of our neighbors and those who do not know Jesus, we cannot look at their intention and attitude toward us. We have to examine what is their intention and attitude toward God apart from Jesus. And that is to be at war with Him. A war of ignorance, a war of overlooking, a war of short-sightedness in regard to who God is, a war of reluctance to respond. So we see that the believers in Jesus, God has offered us something. We have peace with God because our Father loves us. And that's a love that extends beyond you and it extends beyond me. It's Father's Day weekend and... Look, these Hallmark holidays, they kind of throw curveballs for people. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, about Hallmark holidays. We, we have Father's Day and we have Valentine's Day. And we expect preachers to preach on all of these greeting cards. But you've got this right here. And one thing that we find with many pastors is when we preach these texts, or when we preach through the Bible about holidays like today that are nowhere in the Bible, you'll hear a pastor stand up and he will talk about the fathers and he preaches this gospel-less sermon, one guy says. And gospel-less sermon is basically this. It's me telling you as men, would you just stop being terrible as a dad? That's a horrible way to approach any of this. We lead into the idea of what it means to be a father because of the great love that God has for us. And I just, I'll be truthful with you. By and large, you walk in and I spend time with a good many of you. You love your children. You want to be with your children. You want to care for your children. You have affection for your children. Alder, you care for your children, even the bad ones. Alder walked into my office this morning. And when he walked into my office, he said, Can I have your water, dads? Like he's seeing double. We're going to get his eyes checked. Can I have your water, dads? Uh, and I said, You want a sip? He said, No, I just want the whole. Awesome, you hooligan. Get out of here. So, but I gave him the water because I love him. I love him. Oh, thank God I do. Uh, <laughs> God the Father loves you. And, I, and I, you know, once every 8 to 12 weeks, I just say in here, I don't think we think about that enough. We sang it a lot when we were little. And at some point, we just stopped realizing and remembering it. It became rote to us. It's a song that we have memorized, but we haven't personalized. God loves you. But even these disciples are hearing this, and as they hear this, they're like, yes, he's for us. And they've been watching Jesus do Jesus things, and those Jesus things are impressive, and they are supernatural. 
The next thing we see is in 29 through 32 how that plays into their understanding of Jesus' role in light of their war with Rome. Because while we, those who do not believe in Jesus, have one enemy, we as followers of Jesus have multiple. And those can be best summarized by breaking down, wicka wicka, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where it shows us what those are. That the great enemies of Christianity, if we were to categorize them, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Definition, uh, the definition of the world. Believing the here and now, this world, is all that matters. The flesh. The flesh in each of us is the selfish part of us that wants to be God because we believe that we know better. The devil. He is a supernatural being in charge of other supernatural beings called demons, actively at work in the fallen world in which we live. And all three of these enemies of Christians, all three of these things that are at war with me and with you, have one desire. And that is to eradicate and destroy the peace that God has offered us in Jesus. Think about how they work on something as simple as the ads that pop up on your social media like Facebook or on Instagram. Look at the way that those ads, the way that they promote. They show you something that you should do. Anybody seen an ad like that this week? Or someone that you should be. After they have shown you what you should do or who you should be, they tell you that you are not good enough on your own to do that thing or attractive enough on your own to be that person. And they work together. And as those two things work together, coming in to back clean up, if you will, is the devil. And the devil does this. He says to you, I can't believe that you really tell people that you follow Jesus. Because you want what everyone else wants and seek to do what everyone else does. You're just like them. And Tim Keller says that these things make you look more at your sin than they do at your Savior. The disciples, though, it plays out for them in that way. Verse 29, Oh, his disciples said, Ah, oh, now you are speaking... That's got to be an ESV edition. Ah. Oh. Ha. Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. How arrogant is that? This is why we believe that you came from God. Because you're talking plainly to us. I like that his plain speak is what got them over the edge. Do you realize what Jesus has done up to this point that should make you think that he's God? Let me give you some examples. This is not an exhaustive list. A couple of things. He has walked on water. He has calmed the sea. He has fed 20,000 people. He has healed a blind man. He has healed lepers. He has healed lame men. He has raised a dead man to life. Do you know what this is saying about them? 
When you tie what we see in our first point to what we see in the second point, it's showing us this about the disciples. When Jesus says that God loves them, their interpretation of that is that God is going to do exactly what they want him to do. They still think this is about a violent military kingdom. And they don't get it. They have attached themselves to a superman. And they are ready to see what superman can do if they unleash him. They are attempting to control God. The world, the flesh, and the devil, when they begin to work in our hearts, that's exactly what they cause us to attempt to do. D.A. Carson, Canadian theologian, a says, "No misunderstanding is more. No misunderstanding is more pathetic. I love that word than the one that thinks it does not actually exist. Jesus, now we get it, but they don't get it. Misunderstandings, misunderstanding regarding their enemies." The misunderstandings would be this. These disciples look at the world and their misunderstanding is with Jesus, we will overthrow Rome right now. Their misunderstanding of the flesh, we will use God to get what we want. Their misunderstanding of the devil, it, devil is not as obvious here, but we know it is in the same vein that Peter is told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. This desire to make God do what they want Him to do and for God to be what they want Him to be. Isn't that what most of us want? Like, I mean, let's just not... I mean, look, we're not going to war with Rome anytime soon, but think about another situation in the Bible where there is a lack of peace. You've got those sisters, Mary and Martha. You've probably heard of them. I have a working theory on them that I like to drop on people from time to time. But here is what we find. They lack peace too. In the story of Mary and Martha, you have one sister, Martha, wanting Jesus to do exactly what she wants Him to do and control the other sister. Jesus, would you just make her listen? We like to try to control Jesus. And Jesus points out the obvious flaw in her and says that you were anxious. Anxiety being the opposite of peace. And that anxiety, the, the word used in the New Testament for anxiety is split into pieces. To not have peace is to allow the world to split us into pieces. I'm preaching to the choir right now. Because I'm preaching to me. One of the greatest struggles in my life is anxiety. To be divided and to split into pieces and split into pieces. A lack of peace and understanding as to who Jesus is will do exactly that. Because we want him to do exactly what we would have him to do because we know better than him. That's not a savior, that's a pet. And far too many Christians are allowing the world, their flesh, and the devil to treat Jesus as a pet. That's a bad, bad pet to have. The disciples wanted to overthrow Rome. 
and Martha wants Jesus to make her sister help make the butter beans. What way are you trying to control Jesus? What is the thing for you? Hopefully, you see the thing for you will eventually submit to this scriptural truth. That our victory is Jesus. We've heard an old, old story of a Savior come from glory. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have many troubles. I would imagine that your troubles are pretty obvious. You may not be oppressed by a totalitarian government. But the idea of trouble and trial throughout the scriptures, it varies from oppression to sickness and everything in between. In this world, you will have many troubles that will not be overcome in this world. They are going to be there. Thankfully, we have a hope that is not of this world. And the hope that we have is Jesus. The hope that we have in Jesus is the exact opposite of war and anxiety. Because when we look at this text and consider what they're walking through in the physical sense of what peace is, the opposite is war. For us, we are at war with everything stressful, everything tense that this world brings to us. Worry comes from listening to our hearts. Peace comes for us when we, re- when we begin to tell ourselves that our identity is not in what's coming from us, but who has come to rescue us. Do you see the way that Jesus flips this in this passage? He has overcome the world, and His overcoming of the world is completely unlike everything that the disciples were expecting Him to do. They expected Him to come in and win, They expected him to come in and dictate. They expected him to overthrow. They expected him to set up a crown, to have a crown and a scepter. They thought and anticipated that he would have a throne. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. What do you want Jesus to do? But his undoing of those things is the subversive reality of who Jesus is through scriptures. Because all of those things do take place in a flipped upside down sense. Because the kingdom of Jesus is much different. The kingdom of Jesus is unique in the way that it brings peace. It does not bring peace in the way that things of this world would seem to do so. Jesus establishes complete victory through what? Complete loss. The loss of his life allows us to sing victory in Jesus. 
The Pharisees want him dead so that they can have victory. And his death is what makes peace with God possible for you to know the love of your Father. Jesus comes into a world of violence. We've established the violence. If you've got people walking around with daggers, that's violent. Jesus comes into a world of violence and social separation. The separation is also obvious. Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, Jewish people, they're all separated. And here's what Paul says about the kingdom that Jesus established under the banner of Jesus. That Jesus has established a kingdom. He doesn't use the word kingdom. But Jesus has united us in this way. That in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. There is no barbarian, there is no Scythian. There is no slave, there is no free. But Christ is all and he is in all. Meaning that in Jesus, because those are, I mean you probably haven't met a Scythian this week. So let's help out. In Jesus, there is no Republican, there is no Democrat. There is no black, there is no white. In Jesus, we are united under the banner of Jesus because we have realized God's great love for us to establish peace has been shown through His Son. To destroy and dishonor Jesus. The Roman government, they get a robe and a crown of thorns and a throne for Him, the cross. And that is exactly how Jesus establishes his kingdom. In this world, you will have many troubles. But I have come that you may have peace. Take heart. I have overcome the world. The death of Jesus. In our place. So that we could have peace. And not just have it, but display it through sacrificial, selfless demonstration. Living in this world and realizing that this world is not all that matters. The people of God, empowered by God for the purposes of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Heads bowed. do know that we are here in a world that is broken and fallen and struggling and there is tension and anxiety and hurt not only do we know that Jesus knew that in this world you will have many troubles but I have come to be your peace The idea of resting, the idea of staying, the idea of being sustained. Take heart. All of these things are perishable. And what I offer is imperishable. The world is polluted. But I'm not. It's defiled. But Jesus isn't. 
What if this week we looked a little bit more like people who trust Him? Meeting the practical needs of those around us who are hurting. Not allowing anxiety to divide and destroy and pull us apart. Going to war with the world, the flesh, and the devil by the only power that matters a Father who loves us and being his people. If you need me, I'm going to be in the back right hand corner of this room. I would love to pray for you if you need to be prayed for. Listen if you need me to listen. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, then again, God saying that He loves you in this text, it's a simple way of Him calling to you, saying that you need Him. And let He who has ears or she who has ears hear the call of God to give peace to those who are without it and to remind those who live in His peace of the value of it in the day to day. We ask this, Jesus, all of it in your powerful name.